been going through 1 Peter, and this week we are in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, and the, the title of our sermon, the title of the sermon this morning is Cornerstone. Last week we saw how in the beginning of this letter that Peter is writing to the scattered and hurting church, Peter was writing of faith, of hope, and love. How God had had given them faith, how he had established their hope, and how he loved them. And they were called to love each other and, and live that love out. This week, Peter moves a little deeper into, into the foundation of our faith. He uses words of the prophet Isaiah and a psalmist to root, to, to ground, to help us realize the depth of the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. As we work through this small portion of Peter's letter this morning, may we be encouraged in our personal and empowered for the lives of outreach, in our personal lives and empowered for the lives of outreach and ministry that each of us is being called to and shaped for. We read the word of the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that you would speak through your word, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We give this to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. It was the summer of 2002. I had just come home from a mission trip that had ended rather abruptly down in uh, Arizona and had gone home to live with my family in Olympia, Washington. My year off was supposed to be a time to to center myself and, and to give me some direction for what I would be doing in the future, but instead the experience had had just turned my life on its head. And I was struggling to figure out which way was up. I didn't have any desire to go to school, but, I, didn't, but I, did, I did have the desire to make some money, so I started to apply for jobs. Being a, a kid a year out of high school whose only true work experience was dishing out ice cream at Cold Stone, fishing in Alaska, like I did that, but it doesn't sound like work to most places of employment. I think like when you put fishing in Alaska, they, they think you got a rod and a reel and you're hanging out. They're not seeing the nets and the, the craziness. So it just doesn't really, I think, yeah, it doesn't really go over that well. But with those two things as my work experience, it, it wasn't even easy for me to get an interview. Like, it just, it just wasn't happening. Finally, though, I, I finally got a response. Circuit City asked me if I would come in and interview for a position that they had opening up. I loved computers, video games, television, and music. 
this was very much my niche. Like, this was going to be good for me. And I, I was excited about it. And as, as I prepared, as I was getting dressed for the interview, I was informed by a well-meaning individual that I shouldn't dress up. That I should let them see who I really am. And so I did. Again, this was my first real interview. The, the job at Coldstone I had gotten through pure nepotism. I took off my tie and my button-down shirt, put my slacks back in the drawer, and put on my skinny jeans and skate shoes and left for my interview. I arrived and, and let the lady at the desk know that I was there for my scheduled interview, and, and a few minutes later, a manager walked out to meet me, and he asked if I really wanted the job. I was a little taken aback. Of course I did. I was here, right? He told me that if I really wanted the job, that I should have dressed like it. I asked him if I could go home and change and, and still get an interview, and he was a little surprised by that, but he told me he'd allow it. I ran home, I changed, and I sped back to the store. They gave me my interview and then told me right away that I would not be getting the job. Rejection. Who likes to be rejected? Being rejected is being told you aren't good enough. It's being told that you can't do good enough. It's being told that you don't have enough value, that you aren't worth it. Every one of us has and, and will be rejected in life, whether it's by a place of employment, the personification of your affection, colleges, loan applications, bank accounts, business partnerships, entrepreneurial pursuits. Sometimes we, we put up walls, sometimes we put up like defenses, right, to, to, to limit the amount of rejection that we will experience. For many of us, it's easier not to try and spread out our wings, to stay in our, our nests of, of comfort. For we're scared that if we actually try to fly, our wings will fail us, or else that the success we experience will take us like Icarus too close to the sun. And we will fall, be rejected in a different way. According to an article put out by Psychology Today, research shows that rejection affects us in some pretty diverse ways. Rejection temporarily lowers our IQ. Think about that for a minute. Like rejection makes you stupider for a period of time. It doesn't respond to reason. Rejection piggybacks on the physical pain pathways to the brain. So we feel rejection physically. And we can relive that pain more vividly than we would the physical pain. And added to all of this, rejection sends us on a mission to seek and destroy our self-esteem. Rejection causes us to get dumber. We feel the pain physically and remember it more vividly. And it causes us to dislike, even to hate, ourselves. Man, it's no wonder we do everything we can to avoid it. But no matter how crafty we are, no matter how nimble or agile we are, rejection finds each of us. We all face rejection. We are all told we aren't good enough. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? 
There's a saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. How true is that? Our text this morning was written by a man thousands of years ago to a people living in cities that aren't even on a map anymore, cities that archaeologists are digging up or still searching for. And yet the words that Peter writes to a scattered and hurting church are words that we still desperately need to hear today. As you come to him, writes Peter in verse 4 of our text this morning, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Let's just sit in that for a moment, shall we? There's more awesome stuff that's coming, and, and we're going to get there, but let's just sit in this for a moment. Though you are rejected by man, though man tells you that you aren't good enough, though you have failed, though you have fallen short, that you haven't been able to do all of the things that you know you're supposed to do, though you haven't been good enough, Though you haven't acted out your morals as well as you know you're supposed to. Though you aren't as talented as some people are. Though you aren't as gifted or generous as you feel like you're supposed to be. Though there are many, so many different reasons why you should be rejected. And why man has rejected you. God has not. God has not. He has not rejected you. No, instead, he has chosen you. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Or, or I don't know where my walk with the Lord is. Does that mean he's rejected me? Does that mean that, that I am not chosen? No, for we know that God is constantly pursuing the sheep that are not in his pasture. He has chosen you. He is pursuing you. And, and I want you to know that it is my prayer, the prayer of this church, and the prayer of the church universal, that you would stop running. For the sheep that is outside the pasture is just as precious to him as those who are inside his pasture. And here we are reminded, we are encouraged, we are told blatantly and firmly that we are chosen and that we are precious to God Though the world has rejected us, God has chosen us. Wow. Wow. And though we rest in this fantastic grace that we did not earn, though on one hand we rest, on the other hand we realize that rest isn't for our relaxing, but for our comfort. It's not for our relaxing, but for our comfort. For there doesn't appear to be a lot of relaxing going on. For just as we have been chosen and saved and reminded of how precious we are to God, we have been brought onto a construction site. Peter continues this morning writing, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And here we see the building of the church. God is using each of us to build his church, to, to further his mission here on earth. He is using us, building us into the spiritual house, into the church. And it is through this body, the body of Christ, that God continues his mission to bring about his kingdom. So though we rest in the comfort of his grace and his provision and his thoughts and his feelings towards us, we are called not to sit back and relax, but to go forth. In God's mission. We see this all throughout the scriptures. God calling his people to proclaim the good news. The good news of salvation, forgiveness, purchased for us by Christ. 
We are called to give this good news to the world, and we are called to champion not just God's desire for a spiritual walk with Him, but for lives in line with His desire for us and for all creation, all of His creation. We are called to go and seek justice for those who are being oppressed. We are called to put down our political allegiances and to raise the banner to join the call of Christ's purposes on earth. To seek justice for the orphan, for the widow, for those who have been trampled on and overlooked and taken advantage of, and for those who have not yet had the opportunity to draw breath. Karen and I have have spent the last few months watching The West Wing on Netflix. We don't always agree with the stances that the show takes, but we've been enjoying it nonetheless. We recently watched an episode where a genocide had started happening in a fictional country Equatorial Kundu in Africa. And the show wrestles with the question of if the U.S. should get involved. Should the U.S. get involved in a humanitarian crisis over in a little-known country in Africa? The president rhetorically asks one of his speechwriters, why is a Kundanese life worth less to me than an American life? To which the writer responds, I don't know, sir, but it is. Because that's what politics does, right? Politics puts the needs of those who are part of the group over the needs of those who aren't part of the group. The president has to decide if he will spend American lives to rescue the lives of those who are not American. It can be argued that one has to mean more to him because he has been put in charge of those lives and elected by those lives. God's building of the church isn't hung up on all of that red tape. God says that every individual matters to him equally, no matter their political affiliation, how much money they make, the country they live in, the language they speak, or the color of their skin. And his pursuit of the lost sheep, his pursuit of the rejected living stones that he is building his kingdom with, God calls for us reclaimed stones to go out and seek justice and mercy and proclaim Christ's payment for sin. It is not limited by the scope of our comfort zones or our politics. I'm going to take a bit of a sidebar here. I know that this will be over some of our heads, and that's okay, but I just, I just need to address it. So just hang with me for a second. I know that some will ask about Luther's position of the two kingdoms, or on the two kingdoms, and yes, We are part of a spiritual kingdom. But what about the responsibilities that we have as a member of the worldly kingdom? What about our responsibilities as citizens, as Americans? And while, yes, I affirm that we are part of two kingdoms, I also affirm that our political affiliations uh, influence... I also affirm that our political affiliations influence our view in the worldly kingdom so much that these two kingdoms fight against each other. And to that I ask, should they be fighting? And when they fight, which citizenship should we rest in? The citizenship of the temporal kingdom of this world or the citizenship of the spiritual kingdom that will last forever? That God is and will continue to build through us. Church, we are being pieced together, built into his church by God. Being formed into a spiritual house, a spiritual place of worship. And man, what an encouragement that is to me. We've been unable to physically be together for the past three months. Today, finally, some of us are able to meet together here. But being physically apart or physically together does not make us any less 
the church. The church is a spiritual house, a spiritual body that is being put together by Christ. So yes, while it is much more enjoyable to be able to see each other's faces, to fellowship in person, to hear each other's voices, to sing together, and to confess our faith together, while all of this is much more enjoyable, the distance and the separation does not stop us from being the church. Those who are not physically here with us are still worshiping with us just as if they were here. And so functionally, we are a church united, though socially distant. Calvary, we have a beautiful building. I love our sanctuary. The wood roof, the windows, the stained glass, the cross in the front. We've been given a beautiful sanctuary, and I am. We are blessed to worship here. But even if our sanctuary was ugly... Even if we were meeting in a gym or in a rec center somewhere, we would not be any less inside a church, for this church is a spiritual house being built by God. The church is the people. It's God's people on his mission to bring about his kingdom. And just as God is building his church, he is also building the spiritual houses of our lives, right? When a mason is putting together a building, he shapes the stones so that they fit just as he needs them to, just as he wants them to. A mason will take a stone and and smooth out the rough areas. He will cut the stone into accurate geometric shapes. Sometimes the stone is made into an incredibly complex piece. Sometimes it's a perfect square or rectangle. The mason knows what shapes he needs to complete the plans for the building that he is making. And the same is true of us. We are before the Lord rough wedges of stone. We are dirty. We have crumbling edges. We are not smooth, but incredibly rough. And the mason brings us from the quarry into his house, and there he shapes us. He shapes us into the rocks, into the stones, into the living stones that he will build his church out of. So just as God is building the church, he is also building us, shaping us, guiding us, smoothing down our rough edges, washing us, forgiving us. God is shaping us into the stones that he desires us to be, the lights for him that he is calling us to be, the witnesses that he wants us to be, and putting us in the place of ministry that he wants us to fill in his church. And all of this, the church, our lives, built on the stone that was rejected. This is the stone that was cut from a mountain, not made by hands, that struck and demolished the image of the kingdoms of the world. The statue of gold, bronze, iron, and clay that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, which was interpreted by the prophet Daniel. This is the rock that Isaiah prophesied about, saying, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. The psalmist also wrote of a cornerstone that would bring salvation to all who believed, as well as a stone that would be a stumbling block for those who rejected it in Psalm 118. And so deeply embedded in the soil of Israel's rich history was the conviction that she was God's promised kingdom, that Jerusalem was God's saving city, and that the temple stood at the center of God's activity in the world. And then... Centuries later, an impoverished traveling preacher from Galilee named Jesus would come along and take all of the imagery of the stone passages in the Hebrew Scriptures and commit the unpardonable sin of applying them to himself instead of to Judaism, the city 
or the temple. Jesus tell, or John tells us of how Jesus stood in the temple yard and told an unbelieving crowd that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And in so doing, he said for all, sorry, and build in three days. And in so doing, he said for all who knew to listen that the rock that was promised, the rock that smashed Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the rock that was the cornerstone, the rock that would be rejected, the rock on which the greatest kingdom in all of the world would be built off of was not a geographical location, but a man. A man who was fully man and fully God, a man named Jesus. And oh, how the rock was rejected. So angry were those who grasped the message of this young traveling preacher. So much did they stumble over his words and were offended by his message that they arranged for his death. And so Christ was brought up the hill of Golgotha and with him he carried the sins of the world. With him he carried every blemish and crack, every rough edge of every living stone he would one day use to build his church and his kingdom. And there on the cross, on top of the hill of Calvary, the rock of our salvation, was put to death in our place for our blemishes and failings. For he had no blemishes of his own. And then three days later, he did what he promised he would do in the temple courts that day. He raised the temple, he raised himself, defeating sin and death and proving, that, proving the claims that he had made. That the cornerstone is not a geographical location, but that the cornerstone, the stone on which everything else in the kingdom is built, is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And in Him we have forgiveness of sin. In Him we are given faith. In Him we can be sure of our salvation. In Him we are part of the church and therefore a part of God's mission. Christ alone. Cornerstone. Let us build our houses and our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. For he is not rejecting us. He knows how damaged we are. He knows how cracked and scarred we are. And he is loving us, seeking us out, making us his own and shaping us into the rocks that he wants us to be. And while he is shaping us, he is building us into his mission exactly where he wants us. Let us rest in the rock of our salvation. Let us rest in the cornerstone. As we go forth in his mission, let us rest in his work on the cross. Let us rest in Jesus. What a wonderful, fantastic, loving, and amazing God we serve. Amen.